0: Hey, I'm glad that uh, you are here. Week two. Um, How many of you enjoyed very much so last week, our first week learning about Islam? How many of you learned something new that you didn't know uh, before? Yes, absolutely. Um, I talked with a few of you uh, and just even having um, maybe a broader perspective with which to appreciate um, people that we may know or maybe not know yet. Um, And then again, being better equipped to to feel more confident going into a conversation where I can I can have something to latch on to before I, before I talk to a person about, about Jesus, about faith. So I'm, I'm glad that you're back. Um, tonight might be something that may be a little bit more familiar to some of us uh, with Judaism, um, but I'm sure we'll be stretched again uh, even tonight. We're glad that you're back with us uh, this evening. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll just jump right in. Lord, thank you again for an opportunity to be here um, today and... Um, to to come together as your church. Um, We got a chance to worship you this morning with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're here again, um, all of this so that we can better lead people to follow Christ. That's why we are doing this. And so, um, Lord, open our minds, open our hearts uh, to the truth um, about who you are uh, and uh, where other people are with some of those things and, and even their misconceptions. How can we better connect with those who don't know you Fully, Um, so Lord, help us to that end. Be with Kent. Um, Pray that you would speak through him even uh, tonight, and uh, we just ask for uh, your presence and your blessing uh, amongst our time uh, this evening. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Are we good, Caleb? Chuck, thank you. You said Kent instead of Doctor Eby. That makes me feel so good. Please, please, no, please continue that. I earned my doctorate so I could teach at university. I don't even hang my diplomas up in my office. They're somewhere at home in a box. Um, They don't mean anything, that doesn't define me. Um, What defines me is my love for God and the relationship I have with him and the opportunity I get to pour into the students at Bethel University and my family and friends and here. So thank you for calling me Kent. That's, that's the name my mother gave me and my father gave me, and I love it. So, all right. You have no idea the joy that filled my soul as you walked through the door. You came back. Thank you. <laughs> I really appreciate that. So, tonight we're going to uh, take a look at Judaism. And um, I find with my students that this is the, the religion that tends to surprise them the most. Because as Christians, we read about Jews in Scripture. Jesus was a Jew, and and, and so we, we oftentimes feel like we understand Judaism, but the Judaism that we encounter in Scripture is very different than the Judaism of today. And so that tends to be a big surprise for my students. They don't realize that they tend to think, you know, in the line of Pharisees and Sadducees and and all of that, and that that's still part of Judaism today, Um, but it's not. And so what I want to do, if it's okay with you all, is I want to go back and I want to look at basically the foundation of Judaism, and then we can kind of see how Judaism develops in the Bible. And then from there, we'll take a leap of about a 1,000 years, 1,500 years, and we'll move into the moder- what I call modern Judaism of today, and we'll kind of see that transition that occurred between the Jews that were forced out of Israel in 136 AD to the Jews that we encounter today. Is that, is that, is that okay? And then once we arrive at that, then we'll start unpacking the, the three major streams of Judaism that are practiced today, which interestingly... We have all three of them in South Bend, which that's very unusual for a community of 100, 120,000 to have all three streams of Judaism in the same community. So so we're blessed that way. All right. You can see up there in the the pictures that I put, I tried to put a mix of pictures up there that has uh, reflections of all three streams of modern Judaism today. So you can see at the bottom there, as you walk, or walk across from the right to the left, you go from the extreme left of Judaism to the extreme right of Judaism, only we're going backwards, okay? We're going right to left, but the left picture there is the most right, uh, conservative part of Judaism today. The, the one on the right is actually the most left-leaning, the most liberal practice of Judaism today. And so I just wanted to show you those in pictures. So what is Judaism? What is Judaism? The best definition I can give you for Judaism today is it's a prescription for living. It's a prescription for living. It's not just a religious system. For some of them, it's not a religious system. It's an ethnicity. And I'll talk about that when I unpack some of the the different streams of, of Judaism. The crucial question in Judaism is, what do you practice? What are you doing with your life? Those are the two key questions in Judaism. What do you practice? What are you doing with your life? Probably the, one of the least significant parts of Judaism is the question, what do you believe? Because the three different streams of Judaism have wide ranges of, of differing beliefs from one another. So it's more what do you practice? So in in theological terms, it's all about orthopraxy, right practice. It's more about that than it is about orthodoxy, which is right belief. So in Judaism, it's more when you look at the different streams, it's what you practice. The common denominator for Judaism is the need to make a difference in the world. To make a difference in the world through righteousness. And each one defines righteousness differently. So let's look at kind of the historical development of it. So Judaism, I don't have a slide for this. I'm just going to talk about this. Judaism essentially came together as a religious system in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, when God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees. And that's where God began to reveal himself rather intimately to Abraham. And he developed the nation of Israel. He developed the people of Israel through Abraham and Sarah that then we we walk with through the rest of Scripture. So that would have been, most theologians believe, about 2,500 years ago. Well, no, it would have been, sorry, not 2,500 years ago. It would have been 2,500 B.C., So that would be, what, 4,500 years ago. So between 4,500 and 5,000 years ago is when God would have called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees and began to introduce himself to Abraham. I'm assuming you all are familiar with the story of of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the the 12 patriarchs. Okay, so I'm not going to go through all of that. But where it really becomes fascinating for me as a follower of Christ is, um, I'll raise my hand because I fit this. How many of you all love reading Leviticus? (laughs) I do. I really enjoy the book of Leviticus because when you get the people coming out of Egypt at the beginning of Exodus you see God begin to form them into a nation, form them into a community that's to bear his name to the rest of the world. And a big piece of that are the Levitical laws which structure that community so they can be a nation. Now, we don't live by Levitical laws today, but I love Leviticus because if you start getting into the Levitical laws where it tells you don't mix cotton with linen. Why in the world? And yet that was God's way of caring for them. You see, how many people have a shower or a bathtub in your house? Yeah. And hopefully we use it at least once a week, maybe every day, right? Well, they didn't have that. And if you've been around in the hot, the heat. If you have cotton on underneath and you have linen over that and wool over that, that actually insulates you and keeps you cooler in the desert sun than if you just had cotton on. And God knows knows that. He knew that. And so he actually gave them prescriptions for how to, what cloth to wear nearest their body and away from their body that would keep them healthier, stronger. And that was, those are part of the Levitical laws. And what amazes me on that, you all, is how intimate God is to care that much. He even cares that they stay comfortable. And so that's why I love Leviticus. Now, in the most conservative, the most right side of Judaism today, which would be the left-hand picture there, the Hasidic or the Orthodox Jews, they try to keep the Levitical laws as best they can because for them, they're literal. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. So about 4,500, 5,000 years ago, God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, he began to build a nation, and we see that through the scriptures. In scripture then, in the study of Judaism, in the study of the Old Testament, we talk about the two commonwealths. So there's a con- the first commonwealth would have started with uh, Moses, as Moses was leading the people out of Egypt up until about the Babylonian exile. And then the second commonwealth would have started about the Babylonian exile up until the Jews were expelled out of Jerusalem and Israel in 136 AD. So I want to talk just a little bit about those. So here's the, oh, I did put this slide in here. Here's the development of Judaism. So formal Judaism, or it's a monotheistic religion, and i talk about the first commonwealth the second commonwealth let's move to those so the first commonwealth in the first commonwealth you go from moses to the babylonian exile from about 1450 bc to 587 bc judaism as a religious system was formalized and a priesthood was developed you all have no idea how badly i want to go to scripture and just start looking at how these things develop but i'm not going to do that who was supposed to be the priests Before that, the Israelites were. The Israelites were all called to be priests. And in Exodus 19 and 20, they rejected that, and they told Moses, you represent us before God. We don't want to do that. We're afraid of God. And so that's when God established the Levitical priesthood, and they became the priests of of Israel throughout the Old Testament. And then we go to 1 Peter. After Christ comes, gives himself up on the cross, rises from the dead, ascends to heaven, and through Peter, he tells us, who are we? The priesthood of all believers. Israelites rejected it back in Exodus, and he's calling the church today to be that. That's huge. That's huge. So in the commonwealth, We have Mount Sinai after the exodus from Egypt. God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. That's very significant. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Legal code given for social relationships. The tabernacle was built. The Levites were consecrated as a priesthood. Sacrificial system was formalized. And a code of ritual uh, purity was developed. All of this came about in the first commonwealth. And the people were to honor God in who they were and how they lived their lives. They were to reflect God to all the nations around. You probably, in Sunday school, learned the song, This Little Light of Mine, I'm Going to Let It Shine. That's who the Israelites were supposed to be when God brought them out of Egypt and gave them the promised land. They were supposed to be that little light that shone to all the nations around. And instead of shining the light out, they tried to shine it in on themselves. And we see this perpetual... uh, going to God, going away from God, coming back to God, going away from God, coming back to God, going away from God, all through the Old Testament. Just read the book of Judges. You see that cycle over and over and over again. If you're familiar with, I think it's 1 Kings, it might be 2 Kings, when Solomon dies, well, let's just, let's just look. Sorry, I can't not go to Scripture. Let's go to Scripture really quickly because I think it's going to help it make sense. So if we go to, if you have your Bibles, let's go to, uh, let me find it really quickly. Let's go to 1 Kings. And... 1 Kings 14. Sorry, let's go back a couple chapters. Let's go to, to uh, the very end of 11, the very end of 1 Kings 11. At the very end of 1 Kings 11, we see Solomon in his last days. And while Solomon was in his last days as king, there's a young man from Israel by the name of Jeroboam who rebels against Solomon, and then he flees to Egypt to escape the the king's wrath. And we see that at at the very end of chapter 11. and then going down to verse 41 as for the other events of solomon's reign all he did and the wisdom he displayed are they not written in the book of the annals of solomon solomon reigned in jerusalem over all israel 40 years then he rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of david his father now when we talk about solomon first thing that comes to your mind solomon pardon wisdom wisest man that ever lived He humbly asked God as a young man when he became king, give me wisdom to rule your people. And we see all throughout Solomon's reign that he was the wisest person to live. Keep your finger in 1 Kings 11 and go with me to Deuteronomy 17 if you would please. Deuteronomy is the book that Moses wrote. God had told Moses that his days were numbered. He was gonna take him home. And so Moses wrote the book of Deuteronomy. It's it's known as a book of the law. It's where Moses knew he was gonna, his days were numbered, and he wanted to leave the most important things he could leave for the nation of Israel so that they would stay true to God. That's in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 17, God speaking through Moses knows that the people are going to reject God. So he says in in chapter 17, verse 14, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like the nations around us. See, God knew they were going to do that. Who's supposed to be Israel's king? God. But in Samuel, they reject God and they ask Samuel to give them a king. God predicted that all the way back in the ministry of Moses. In Deuteronomy 17. And when he did that, he gave them what the king was supposed to do and what the king was not supposed to do. Let's read that list together. Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers, so he must be a brother Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself. Check that. Or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. Check that. You are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. Check that. He must not accumulate large, amount, large amounts of silver and gold. Check that. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law. He's supposed to copy down the book of Deuteronomy and keep it with him all the time and read it daily. Those were the the things that the, the king was supposed to do and not supposed to do. How many of those did Solomon break? All of them. How many wives and concubines did he have? Over a thousand. Scripture tells us that in the days of Solomon, silver was like stones in the street. He had so many horses and chariots, they had to build cities for them. And guess where they got them from? At least a good part of them Egypt. Solomon, the wisest man in the world, broke every one of those laws that God told the king not to do. So when Solomon dies, God decides he's going to take. 10 tribes of the 12, and give them to Jeroboam. And two tribes will remain with Rehoboam, Solomon's son. And so the the kingdom divides. Now, I share all of that because we need to understand that those 10 tribes that Jeroboam led, he created idols for them, instead of allowing them to go to Jerusalem, which was in Rehoboam's reign, he created idols for them and a priesthood for them, and those kings of Israel, not one of them ever repented of that. Read through 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. No king of Israel ever turned back to God. As a result of that, God allowed the Assyrians to come in and remove them. And they're known as the ten lost tribes of Israel because in Scripture we never see them formally come back. All of this took place in the first commonwealth. The first commonwealth. Then we get to the second commonwealth. Second commonwealth begins with the Babylonian exile. And what we need to understand with that is the Babylonian exile is actually the two tribes that remained the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And it gets a little confusing in Scripture because before the tribes split, you had Israel and Judah. Judah was, was uh, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. Israel were the ten tribes. After the ten tribes are exiled to Assyria, Scripture starts referencing them as Israel again. And so Israel... When we get to the second commonwealth, Israel that's exiled to Babylonia, or Babylon, that's primarily the two tribes, and any one of the ten that that tended to trickle back into Israel. But mostly they stayed away. Now, this is significant, you all, because in the Babylonian exile, God reformed his people. When God sent them to Babylon, He said, you will be here about 70 years, and then I'm going to call you back to Jerusalem. What did God do in the life of the Israelites in Babylon? So if, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, that's the book of Daniel. That's Ezekiel. That's Jeremiah. And many of the, what we call the minor prophets are prophesying about the Israelites in Babylon. The book of Esther... That's a story about Israel and King Xerxes. So, why did God start the second commonwealth in exile? He was calling his people back to himself. And some really significant things occurred in Babylon. For example, remember in Scripture, God tells the the Israelites, settle down. Marry, build homes. Make yourself comfortable. You're going to be here a while. What did they do when they built homes and they married and they formed their own Jewish communities? They started a new, something new, because they didn't have the temple. The temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. So how did they worship? How did they come together and and stay connected with God? They developed something called a synagogue. You ever heard of a synagogue? The synagogues were developed in Babylon by the Jews. And they were community centers and centers of study. So the purpose of the synagogue primarily in Babylon was for the people to learn the Torah. The Torah are the first five books of the Old Testament. And so God brought them back. So um, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he was what? A rabbi. Who were the rabbis? Rabbis were teachers of the law. Rabbis were the ones who ran the synagogues. So the the office of rabbi, the office of scribe, which was tied to the temple, in Babylon became the office of rabbi. They were scribes. They still copied scripture, but they became teachers of the scripture. All of this occurred in the second commonwealth. All of this occurred. and, And I want you to understand that because We still see it today. The houses of worship, the community centers for Jewish communities, more often than not, are referenced as synagogues. And that's, it's not just a, so we think of church, and church is where we primarily come to worship. Oh, we celebrate too, but it's primarily a place to to learn and worship, whereas the synagogue is the center of the Jewish community. Anything and everything can take place at the synagogue. On Sabbath, on Shabbat, they worship there. But other times, it's a school. It's a a civic center. It's whatever they need it to be. But it's the center of their community. And that developed in Babylon. So when they came back from Babylon, they went back to Jerusalem. They, They rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt Jerusalem. But they also started building synagogues in their communities. And that's where they would gather to learn. That's where they would gather on Sabbath. And Jesus attended synagogue regularly. Luke 4. Luke 4 says Jesus returned to Nazareth and went to the synagogue, the place where he grew up, the synagogue he grew up in, and he taught there. Now, what I want us to see with this, because it sets the stage for where we're going to go with modern Judaism, is the the second commonwealth was very intentional on God's part to bring his people back to himself. So by the time we get to the coming Messiah, and there's a lot that occurs between 587 B.C. and the birth of Christ. We see the Greeks take over the Jews when they come ba- after they come back and then they defeat the jew or the greeks and they have a few years of peace where they rule themselves and then the romans come in in 63 AD and take over and so it's this perpetual freedom takeover freedom takeover but in that they're anticipating the messiah they're anticipating that god's going to send he's going to fulfill the prophecy of the old testament and he's going to send the messiah but who were they waiting for They weren't waiting for God, they were waiting for a man in the line of David who would restore the glory of Israel to the days of David and Solomon, where all the world came to them. And so Jesus didn't fit any of those categories. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, his parents fled to Egypt, when they came back, he grew up where? Nazareth. What do we know about Nazareth? In John, Jesus calls Philip, and Philip goes to his friend Nathaniel, and he says, Nathaniel, we have found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. What's Nathaniel's response? Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You want the Kent E.B. modern day paraphrase? Nazareth? That's where the rednecks live. Can the Messiah really come from a place like that? Jesus didn't fit the categories. And he didn't fit the category of just being a man because we all know that Jesus is fully man and fully God. I I want to set that stage because that sets the stage then for us to understand modern Judaism. Are we okay so far? All right. So let's move into the formation of modern Judaism. To do that, we need to look at, oops, I go in the back the wrong way. Sorry, Caleb, I'm really trying. By the last time we're together, I'll get it right. Okay, so I wanna just really quickly unpack these groups. These are groups we meet in the New Testament. Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, Zealots, and Herodians, okay? I think you have a sheet there that that describes who they are. The Pharisees were a non-political lay movement within Judaism that was concerned with keeping Jewish beliefs pure. Teachers of the law, scribes and rabbis, scriptural scholars and teachers. So among the Pharisees were primarily the rabbis and the scribes and they were concerned with keeping Judaism pure. They were the keepers of the law. And so you know, Jesus had these rubs with the Pharisees because the laws were getting in the way of who Jesus is and who he, wanted, who he was calling the people to be. Now, I read a, 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 a book, and the, the author of the book said this, and, and, I, and it, it, it tweaked something in me that I had to think about. He said, sometimes I think the, the Pharisees get a bad rap, We think that they're not religious. We think that they don't love God. But actually, they loved God immensely. They just thought God needed defending. And Jesus was saying, my father doesn't need defending. He needs us to embrace him for who he is and let him be who he is in our lives. And that requires something different from us. But they were the keepers of the law. The Sadducees were from the priestly caste. They were powerful aristocrats. The the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch had primary authority and they did not believe in oral traditions. So they didn't believe in the oral traditions of the rabbis. Rabbis interpreted scripture and wrote down those oral traditions. The, The Sadducees had nothing to do with those. They were priests responsible for Jewish worship in the temple. The Essenes, These were very conservative religious communities focused on a strict doctrinal unity. The Essenes were like the the, 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 um, monasteries. They set up communities outside of Jerusalem and outside of towns where the really ultra-religious people gathered together and they copied Scripture and studied Scripture. You ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Familiar with those? Those came from an Essene community. The Essenes were the keepers of the, of the scrolls, the keepers of their scripture. Then you had the Zealots, a militant anti-Roman revolutionary group, and then the Herodians, the Herodians were a political party align, aligned with King Herod. Who was King Herod, by the way? Anybody know? Was he Jewish? Please say no. He wasn't, he wasn't Jewish. The Romans would never put a Jew as a king. He was an Edomite. Who were the Edomites? Descendants of Esau, cousins, cousins to the Jews. The Edomites understood Judaism well enough that they could rule over them and keep them under control. The Romans didn't understand them. They made no sense to the Romans. And so the Romans, when they tried to control them, the more they tried to press in on them, the more the Jews fought. So they put an Edomite king over them, and he established his line and they could finally kind of control them a little bit. Well, the Herodians were Jews who aligned themselves with Herod. It was a political alignment. So I share all that so we can see this. Whoops. So you can see here, yeah, it's not gonna angle. So if you the top left, that's assimilated. What that means is that's assimilated into Roman culture. And then political is above that line. So if you look at the horizontal line, assimilated separate. So, groups either assimilated with the Romans or kept themselves separate from the Romans. So, the Sadducees, the priestly political organization, they were more assimilated, but they were socially religious. They stayed with the Jewish community somewhat in their religious beliefs and practices. The Herodians, look at that. The Herodians were assimilated and very political, They were Jewish, but they were more about their politics than they were about their their Jewish faith. The scribes are right there in the middle. The Pharisees, you'll see, are separate, and they're non-political. They're socio-religious. They're for the people. The Essenes, then, are all the way down on the right-hand side, and they're separate and socially religious. They're the most conservative of all the groups. Does that make sense? So you can kind of see where they fit in all of this. Within the Sanhedrin, you familiar with the term Sanhedrin? That's the, the, the um, religious leaders of the Jewish community. Within the Sanhedrin, you had the priests, uh, the Sadducees, you had the scribes and the Pharisees, and you had the elders. The Sadducees and priests were called Levites. The scribes and Pharisees were primarily made up of rabbis, and they didn't like each other. Remember when Paul was arrested in Jerusalem? He said, let me stand before the Sanhedrin. I want to talk to them. What did he do? He threw out a question that he knew would just explode the community because they didn't like each other. Their religious beliefs were very counter to one another. So I share all that. Now, this is mine. So take it with a grain of salt. But it really helps me to see things to understand. So if we look at this and we look from left to right, we see Sadducees, Herodians, Pharisees, Essenes, and Zealots. Okay? In 70 A.D. or CE, common era, the Romans destroyed the Jewish temple. They came in and they destroyed the temple. As a result of that, there was nothing for the Sadducees to do, nothing for the Levites to do. They were tied to the temple. The temple's gone. So they kind of just merged in with other groups. Does that make sense? In 73 A.D., Masada. You familiar with Masada? Masada's at high plateau. That's where the, um, where the Zealots committed suicide before the Romans could get them. No more Zealots. They're gone. Somewhere in there, we don't know exactly when the Herodians would have, would have gone away, but somewhere in there between uh, the destruction of the temple and the ransacking of Jerusalem about 136, somewhere in there, the Herodians disappeared. Also in there, the Essenes disappeared. And the Essenes disappeared primarily not from persecution, but they had a a strict unwritten rule of celibacy. So they just died out. They didn't have families. And eventually the community just died. That leaves us with the Pharisees. So modern Judaism comes from the Pharisees and the Pharisees are primarily made up of the rabbis. So early Judaism after Christ, after the destruction of Jerusalem, after all the Jews were kicked out of Israel in 136 became known as rabbinical Judaism. And so every Jewish group today traces its roots back to rabbinical Judaism. Rabbinical Judaism formed the Talmud, which is the the second most important set of books in Judaism. So they compiled those and, and put them together. Known as Talmudic Judaism, rabbinical Judaism. Well, what happened then is in the late 1700s, in Eastern Europe, in Germany, Anybody here ever seen the the movie uh, Fiddler on the Roof? Or the play Fiddler on the Roof? Where did the Jews live? They lived outside the town. They lived in their own community separate outside the town. And that was common all over the world for Jewish communities. Because their religious beliefs were so strict, because their religious beliefs were so different from everyone else's, they forced them into their own communities. And in the late 1700s, some young Jewish men and women became educated in the universities and they started bringing in this idea that we need to somehow mainstream more into society and culture. And it started with philosophical reasoning, rationality, um, started by a guy named, well, not it wasn't started by him, but a major influence in that movement was a guy by the name of Moses Mendelssohn, and I'll talk about him in a little bit. But what that did was it split Judaism then. So reformed Judaism, the one on the far left there, that was the first to break away from rabbinical Judaism. In Reformed Judaism, they wanted to keep the basic practices, the basic beliefs of Judaism, but they wanted to dress like everyone else and live in the same areas as everyone else. And so once you split it, you have to give a name to the, to the, to the part that remains as well. So when, this, when it split to Reform Judaism, then Rabbinic Judaism became known as Orthodox Judaism. And then... In the late 1800s, early 1900s, what they found was that the Reformed went so far away that the young people weren't staying in Judaism. They were just becoming like everyone else. And so they kind of came back to the right just a little bit, and it's called conservative Judaism. Now, conservative Judaism, don't let that name throw you off they're not the most conservative of the Jews. They're just more conservative than the Reformed. Does that make sense? So now you have the three primary groups. You have the Orthodox, which were the, they're the ultra-conservative. You have the Reformed, who are way over on the left. And then you have the Conservatives, who are just kind of to the right of 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 the Reformed. And then, in the United States, there's another group called the Reconstructionist Jews who were formed a little bit after that. So that sets the stage for modern Judaism. How are we doing? Doing okay? You want to take a break? Process that a little bit? Or you want to move on? Your call. Plow through. Okay. <laughs> I'm having fun oh by the way i forgot this is the tanakh this is jewish scripture same as our old testament just arranged differently so i'll pass this around if you want it's in hebrew and english now you'll notice that you don't open it like our books you have to start this way because it goes from right to left okay and it has hebrew and english in it so you're welcome to look at that if you want to same as our scripture, okay? All right. Oops, turn it the right way, Kent, there we go. All right, so just to give you some ideas on the, the size of Jewish communities, in Israel, they're about somewhere right now, they're estimating 7.2 million to, to 8 million Jews in Israel. In the United States, we actually have more Jews in the United States than we do in Israel. Um, It's a little over 7.6 right now, a little over 7.6 million in the United States. So, excuse me, I mentioned that there are three Jewish places of worship in South Bend. There's Temple Bethel, which is the Reformed Jewish line. There's Sinai Synagogue, the conservative, and then there's the Hebrew Orthodox congregation on the south side of South Bend that's Orthodox. Notice, notice something different here, you all. So the Hebrew Orthodox congregation, they call their facility a synagogue. Notice that the Reform called their their place of worship what? A temple. There, that's the only group of Jews that reference their place of worship as a temple because they're not even looking for the temple to be rebuilt. That's not part of their belief system. They worship at the temple. All the other Jewish groups, it's synagogues. The Reformed are the only ones who call their places of worship temple that I'm aware of. They don't care. And we'll talk about that when we, when we start getting into it, yeah. It's not part of their belief system. I mean the, other two. the other two, the conservative sides of the other two are looking for the rebuilding of the temple, yeah. So here's a, a map of uh, Europe and North Africa and the Middle East. So the two largest groupings, and I don't want to confuse you all, but, I, but you need to be aware of it is there are two major groupings of Jewish communities. The ones in the blue are called Ashkenazic, and they speak a language called Yiddish. Okay? Fiddler on the roof, those were Ashkenazic Jews. Ashkenazic Jews are the Jews that migrated out of Israel up into Europe, and they they settled in Europe. So most of the Holocaust impacted Ashkenazic Jews. There were some Sephardic Jews in there as well, but primarily it was Ashkenazic Jews. That Jewish community was decimated by the Holocaust. Then if you look in the red, the red, those are called Sephardic Jews. Sephardic Jews are Jews that settled in in Portugal, in Spain, in North Africa. And then you can see there... uh, Italy, Greece, or Greece and Turkey. So the Sephardic Jews settled in traditionally Islamic lands. So Portugal and Spain were ruled by the Moors, the Muslims, up until the 1400s. And so when the Jews migrated out of Israel that settled in those lands, they formed their Jewish communities within uh, a Muslim context. So in 1492, what happened? And it's not Columbus sailing the ocean blue. In 1492, Spain finally got all the Moors out of Spain and they became a Catholic nation. When they became a Catholic nation, as they kicked the Muslims out, they also kicked as many Jews out as they could. And so what happened was those Jews those Jewish communities from Spain and Portugal that were kicked out of there because of the the Catholic Church, they migrated across Europe to Turkey. And so you see there, Turkey's red. And that's because they felt more comfortable living in Islamic lands than they did in Christian lands because they formed their communities already in an Islamic context. They're Jewish, but within the Islamic context. So those are the two largest, what we would call, communities of Jews. And so within those communities, within Ashkenazic, within Sephardic, you have Reform, you have Conservative, you have Orthodox, and you have Reconstructionist. And then there's the green. The green are called uh, Mizrahi, and those are ones who stayed in the Middle East. And they just, it's a smaller group. By land mass they look larger, but by numbers they're a lot smaller. Um, But those were the the Jews that stayed in Middle Eastern context, North African context. Again, within the Muslim world primarily. Here it shows in the U.S. where most of the Jews are located. So if you go into the eastern seaboard there, Uh, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., New York City and and that area. There are a lot of Jewish communities in those areas. So let's talk about groups, okay? Let's talk about groups. The first group I'm gonna talk about are the Reformed Jews. That's the most left-leaning, that's the most liberal side of Judaism. And if you remember, um, as I talked about them, now I've got to get my pages in, in, in order. Right, here we go. So the primary person who brought the Reformed Jews together was a man by the name of Abraham Geiger. Not that you need to know that, but you'll, you can just be familiar with his name. He's the one that kind of brought them together. The one who was the philosophical and religious catalyst of the reformed Jews breaking away from rabbinical Judaism was a guy by the name of Moses Mendelssohn. Moses Mendelssohn was a theologian, a philosopher, absolutely brilliant, lived in Germany. And so he was one of the key leaders in getting people to start thinking about what can we keep in Judaism to remain Jewish? What can we get rid of that will allow us to mainstream in the rest of society and culture? And so they changed some of their practices. They changed some of their, um, the way they lived, the way they dressed. And the, the whole purpose of that was for them to be like everyone else. Because being separate, they were constantly persecuted. They were constantly looked down on. So Moses Mendelssohn, 1700s in Germany. Reformed Judaism is the most liberal form of Judaism. They refer to their meeting places as temples. It does not see traditional forms as authoritative. In other words, the Torah, they respect the Torah by name, but it doesn't have any impact on their lives. They're not looking for a Messiah, but rather they're looking for a messianic age. A messianic age when all people will get along with one another. So therefore, they don't really look for the temple. It has no significance to them. And so in many ways, you all, and, and I, I confirmed this with the rabbi. Because I had a student ask me once, is Judaism a religion or an ethnicity? And I didn't know how to answer that question. And there's a rabbi in, in, in South Bend that I trust We have a a friendship. And so I just asked him straight out. I said, Rabbi, is Judaism a religion or an ethnicity? And he looked at me and goes, depends on what stream you're part of, but yes. (laughs) The Reformed, most Reformed Jews that are more liberal, they see their Jewishness as an ethnicity. It's their identity. It's who they are. So they go to Shabbat, they go to Sabbath as part of their identity, but it has very little impact or influence on what they believe. And like I mentioned, the Torah has very little influence on them. They will will look at Torah, and if it has something meaningful for their belief system, they'll take it. Otherwise, it's just a tradition of of their ethnicity. Many of them will keep the holidays, but very loosely, and they keep the holidays because that's part of their ethnicity. Does that make sense? Then you have, just a little bit to the right of the Reformed, you have conservative. So conservative Jews, I'll go back to Orthodox in a little bit. The conservative Jews, founded in the the late 1800s by Zacharias Frankel, they're their most theologically diverse group of Jews, okay? So within conservative Judaism, you can have the far left and you can have right up to orthodox, which keeps Levitical laws. Does that make sense? All of them fit within the conservative stream. Some conservative Jews are kosher, some are not. And that has to do with the conservatism of their beliefs. So a rabbi that I know who is more aligned with the conservative Jews has five children. Two of them are atheists. The other three kind of just fit somewhere in there. And I asked him about that. He goes, they're still Jews because they're born Jewish. And they keep, they keep the holidays. So as long as you keep the practices you're good, does that make sense? You don't have to believe in God, you just keep the practices of your ethnicity. Now that's, that's a radical side of it, okay? I don't, want, I, don't want to, I don't want you all to walk out of here and think that all Jews don't believe in God. Most Jews do believe in God, most do. And most Jews would, would have some reverence for the Tanakh. The Tanakh is our Old Testament. And Tanakh means, it's, it's a, an acronym. It's Torah, Nevim, and Ketavim. And that's how they divide the Old Testament books up. And so they just put vowels in between there, and it's Tanakh. So, okay, everybody, I need you, I need you to look at me. I know it's painful, but just look at me for a second, okay? Because I, I really need you to hear this. Please don't walk out of here with the belief that most Jews are atheists or don't believe in God, because that is not true. Most Jews believe in God, it's just how much of an impact they allow God to have in their lives. But they're all very staunch in their ethnicity as Jews. Fair enough? Okay. So, conservative Judaism, it's the most theologically diverse. There's a respect for and an adherence to Jewish customs and laws, but also adapts to contemporary society. So houses are kept kosher as long as they can keep kosher. If they can't keep kosher, it's okay. My cousin married a, a young lady who grew up conservative Jew. And in her house, she'll keep kosher as much as she can, but she doesn't expect her husband and sons to keep kosher. Even though my cousin joined the conservative uh, community, she doesn't expect him to keep kosher because he didn't grow up that way. And so there's just this wide range within conservative Judaism. There's a solid knowledge of Tanakh and the Talmud. And I'll unpack the, the scriptures in just a second, okay? So they do have a knowledge, a good knowledge of the Tanakh and the Talmud. And then The synagogue is the house of worship, the center of the community. The community revolves around the synagogue. All events take place there, primarily. And then we go back to Orthodox Judaism. It's traditional rabbinic Judaism. It's the closest to rabbinic Judaism that remains. Most conservative regular Jewish group, adhere to strict Jewish customs and laws, deep respect for and knowledge of the Tanakh and Talmud. They dress differently, look at that. You can see he's got the tassels coming out from from the side of his uh, shirt. They oftentimes will have the the long sideburns that they'll put up uh, behind their ears so they don't look too conspicuous. They always wear the yarmulke, which is the prayer, the prayer skull cap. And then you'll notice that they oftentimes have black hats on top of that. Large, large, large Orthodox community in Chicago. And there's a decent-sized Orthodox community on the south side of South Bend. Their house of worship is called a synagogue. And they pray numbers of times of day. They have rituals where they'll tie the scripture to their arm they'll try, tie scripture to their forehead and they have rituals that they go through um so i used to go to lithuania i was on the board of a university over there for eight years and i would fly through warsaw poland and warsaw poland is the kind of the center for chicago jews and so flying from warsaw to chicago that flight oftentimes was over 50% uh, Orthodox Jews on the flight. And I loved, and I, I did this with as deep a respect as I could, I loved, as I was waiting to board the plane, if it was prayer time, how reverent they were in keeping their prayer practices. And I would watch them pray. And I would listen to them pray. And I would pray right along with them, But my prayer was that they would meet Jesus. But they absolutely revere God as best they know how. But for them, remember, it's more about orthopraxy, right practice, than orthodoxy, right belief. Everybody see that squirrel over there? ADHD moment. Squirrel! There's something we need to to recognize here. A uniqueness of Christianity over just about every other religious system out there, and I would feel safe saying over every religious system out there is that Christianity is not works-based. It's a relationship with the living God. Let me say that again. Christianity is not a works-based faith. It's a relationship with the living God and His reaching out to us and His desire for us to reach out to Him. But it's not what we do. Every other religious system that I study has some form of you have to do the right things. Now, granted, if we're in relationship with God, He desires us to be righteous and holy, right? And that requires us to have a transformation of the heart, which then impacts what we do. But doing the right thing is not necessarily going to lead us to Christ as much as believing the right things and being the right people. So Orthodox Judaism is a lot about practicing the right way. All right. Then there's Reconstructionist, Jude- oops, Reconstructionist Judaism, Mordecai Kaplan, 1934, United States, attempt to integrate religious Judaism into all aspects of Jewish life by bu- viewing Jewish religion as a facet in the evolution of the total Jewish culture. Reconstructionist Judaism is really big in New York City. That's where the center of Reconstructionist Judaism is primarily. So then there's all these other groups, and I'm just going to, I, I put them up here just so you can see them. The Yemenite Jews, okay? In the country of Yemen, there used to be a very large Jewish community. Most of them now have immigrated to Israel or other parts of the world because of Islam, but they were there, and they're known by their blue and, they dress in blue and white stripes. The Karite Jews, they deny the Talmud and rabbinical tradition, Torah only, and those I believe primarily come from no, that's not of the Falasha from Ethiopia. I'm not sure where the Karites are. Falasha Judaism then deep in Ethiopia, and they're keeping the second commonwealth still. They're still some of the most conservative of the Jews. They're starting to migrate to Israel, and so they're, they're kind of uh, mingling with the, the Hasidic Jews, which are the ultra-conserv- ultra-conservative Jews in Israel, the Hasidim. Secular Judaism, Zionism. Zionism was a political movement driving for a Jewish homeland. Who do you think the Zionists were? Secular Jews. Most of the the Zionists were atheists. They just wanted the return of Israel back to the Jewish people. I've talk and talked to conservative Jews. I've talked to reformed Jews. I haven't talked to very many Orthodox Jews. But when I talked to conservative Jews and, and reformed Jews, they really didn't push for Israel, the establishment, reestablishment of the, the nation of Israel. They were comfortable where they were in their practice. But the Zionists, they, they pushed really hard for, uh, for the establishment of Israel again. Now, the Hasidim has moved into Israel, and they're very prevalent there now. But they weren't necessarily part of the establishment of it. Yes? Benjamin Netanyahu, I don't know his religious beliefs, but... He's probably more—he's probably between reformed and Zionist. I don't think he's a a strong believer in in Torah or the traditional uh, Jewish beliefs. Um, And the reason I say that is because I don't know about him as well as I. So in Russia, long story, but I'll make it really short. In Russia, I became really good friends with an Orthodox priest. This Orthodox priest grew up Jewish. But in his adulthood, he converted from Judaism to Russian Orthodoxy during the Soviet times. Father George is his name. Father George was the department head at the State University in Kostroma where we lived for English and he, he converted to Christianity. As a result of his conversion to Russian Orthodoxy, the Soviets really started to press him really hard and he realized that most priests in the Russian Orthodox Church under the Soviet system were KGB agents, and he refused to join the KGB. So he, was, he and all of his children and his wife converted to Christianity. He was persecuted so badly, you all. Father George has uh, three fingers left on his right hand. Two of them were chopped off during persecution He has a sleepy left eye, he can't open his left eye because he was beaten so severely on the left side of his head, he can't open his eye now. All of this for his Christian faith. During one of those moments of extreme persecution and physical abuse, he recanted his Christian faith for a moment. That devastated his oldest son. His oldest son went back to Judaism And he's now a government minister under Netanyahu. And when Father George and I would speak about his son, I'm not going to say his name, when when Father George and I would speak about his son, uh, he had become an atheist. And that was his way of wanting nothing to do with the Christian faith that his mom, dad, and younger brother adhered to. Um, And and so he moved to Israel built a life for himself and he's now a government he's like in the top 5 or 6 government ministers in the in the Israeli government and he's atheist so he would run in the in the in the circle with Netanyahu so i I don't want to say Netanyahu's an atheist but i think he would be more on the very liberal side of Judaism yeah be more secular jewish and this is the hard thing for, for me anyway to wrap my head around is because my faith defines who I am. It's not an ethnicity for me. It's, it's, it's a belief in the living God. But in so much of Judaism, those two are wedded together, ethnicity and belief. And the one that can fall away is belief. But ethnicity always remains. And so whether you're a secular Jew, whether you're an Orthodox Jew, Hasidic Jew, which are the most conservative, all of them see that as an ethnicity, and then their beliefs are, are put on top of that or with that. You want me to go there? (laughs) I'll go there. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. In fact, I'll be really honest with you all. This is probably more than you want to know, but I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up in a Christian community. I went to a Christian school in high school. And at 19, I rejected all of that because now, again, I'm not proud of this. It's not who I am now, but as a 19-year-old, my world fell apart. My parents lost their business. They started having marital issues. We moved from Virginia where I grew up to Indiana where they grew up. And I saw Christians eat my parents alive. At least that's the way I viewed it as a 19-year-old. Now, looking back at it as a 60-something-year-old, I see where I was wrong in some instances, okay? But for me that was devastating. And if that's what Christianity was in my 19-year-old brain, I didn't want anything to do with it. So I walked away. And I walked away for almost 10 years. And I'm not proud of that. I don't say this with pride. I say this with shame. But I walked away for almost 10 years. And then God got a hold of my life. And I've been all in ever since then. But for me, you all... If, if there's nothing else you remember about Kent Eby, please remember this. I absolutely love this book. This is my food. This is my drink. This is my sustenance. I can't live a day without this book right here. And that's my faith. My faith comes from this. And my faith is in the living God who reveals himself through his word. And that's, that's if you want to know What defines me, who defines me, that's who defines Kent E.B. And you can't separate that. That, that, this goes into everything of who I am my finances, my relationships, every choice I make, I hope, is influenced by the Word of God. It has to be that. And I talk to my students about that all the time. I had a colleague tell me when I first started at Bethel 17 years ago, because I've been crazy about the Bible ever since I became a follower of Christ at the age of 27. And I had a colleague tell me, you'll never get college students to read the Bible with you. You all, I'm meeting with a young lady with the permission of my wife. We meet in the Dying commons on Friday because we went to Alaska together in May, and she saw my love for Scripture, and she said, I wanna love Scripture that way. What do I need to do? I said, you serious about it? She goes, yeah. I said, read the Bible. She goes, I don't even know how. So I gave her my Bible reading plan that I had in my Bible, because I make a Bible reading plan every year. I gave it to her. She goes, I'll catch up with you by the time school starts. That was in May, that was the end of May. You all, she caught up with me, and we meet every Friday afternoon for lunch, in the dining commons, in public, because I won't meet with a a, a female privately, one-on-one. We meet in the dining commons, and she has a whole list of questions from her Bible reading that week. And we talk about it. That's what life's about for me. I mean, that I'm all in. And I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish. Pastor Dan, you got me started, so you're gonna have to shut me off. I wish that all of us would fall in love with Scripture. And that we would hold this to be the inerrant word of God where truth is found for any aspect of life. I just taught Proverbs 5 this morning in Sunday school, you all, and I was weeping as I was preparing that lesson because Proverbs 5 has five admonitions in it that have to do with our daily lives because God cares about every facet of our lives. And it's all right there. And we have it on our bookshelf. We have it on our nightstand. We have it wherever. And we hardly ever open it because it's hard to read. But if we start reading it, it begins to make sense. And you've got pastors around here and teachers around here that you can look to who will help you unpack it. And if I look at the Jewish community, you all, and and as I get to know the Jewish community, very few of them engage Scripture. They have the traditional Scripture reading on, on Sabbath, and we'll talk about those a little bit. They know about the laws, the 613 laws from the Old Testament. They know those, but they don't really read Scripture. They don't let the Word of God speak into their lives. And Dan I think you're right. Many Christians we don't either. But we have to. If we want to make a difference in the world, if we want to love well, if so this is this is sorry, I'll stop after this. I am so tired of the church being on the defensive instead of on the offensive. And I'm not, saying let's, I'm not saying let's go out and be offensive to everyone. That's not what I'm saying at all. But let's be proactive. Let's let the Scriptures help us look at issues that people are walking through today and love them to Christ. But we can't do that if we don't know the Word of God, if we don't have a, a true intimate knowledge of our living God. I'll stop with this. promise. Chapel on Friday. We had Missionary Church Day at Bethel. First time ever. Blew me away how many pastors came. It was such a blessed day for me. I've been on cloud nine all weekend long. And the president of the missionary church spoke in chapel. And he spoke on hope. And he he talked about how so often as Christians, we define hope as maybe God will. Or, well, I hope he will. You hear the doubt there? I'll pray to God and hopefully he'll... That's not hope. God gives us hope. And the way he divined hope was confident expectation. Do we confidently expect God to be who he says he is right here? And if we do, he he will honor that. Just this morning, there's a a couple that we're in a really intensive discipleship group with. We've been meeting together eight years, every month, and we answer three of Wesley's questions. How's your soul? What's the Holy Spirit showing you? And where do you need to correct your life? And as four couples, we answer those questions every month together. And this couple's in that group. And I've seen this fella go from... calling himself a Christian to a really intense, deep faith. Severely injured by his parents, relationally. It's hard for him to trust. And one of their daughters is divorced, has two young children that are 10 to 12 years old, and then a little baby from her uh, live-in boyfriend, and the 10- the and 12-year-old are just floundering because they don't have that foundation at home anymore. Grandma and Grandpa brought them to church today. And the young girl, she's 12, I think. And she's developing into a young lady. And I talked to Grandpa, who's my friend. I said, it's so good to see the grandkids. He goes, yeah. He goes, he goes I just hope. He, he said, 12-year-old girls can be really cruel to one another. I hope. They embrace her because I would love for her to want to come back to church. I said, well, let's pray. So I put my hand on him, and we prayed just for that. Tears are streaming down grandpa's face. On my way here, I got a text. Thank you for praying. They embraced her, and she wants to come back next Sunday. You all, that's confident expectation. That's God at work. When we pray, let's pray in such a way that we know God is going to answer and then church will be different. Sorry, I'll stop with that. But it's it's so real. And that's one of the reasons I love studying the religious all the different religions because all the different religions drive me more and more and more to Jesus. There's no religious system in the world that's historical like Christianity. Judaism, the Tanakh, that's our Old Testament. That's historical, but it stops there. But you take this book right here, and it's it's history. It's real people doing real things, letting God work through them in real ways. And it's, it's there to encourage us and to draw us to Him. And Christianity is the only religion that has that. None of the other scriptures are historical. All right. So we're going to stay here till 10 o'clock. Is that okay? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So let's talk about Jewish scripture. Let's talk about Jewish scripture. So I already talked about the Tanakh. That's Torah. That's the Pentateuch. That's the law. That's the first five books of the Bible. The Nevim. Which are the prophets, the early, later, and minor prophets. So they, they group all the prophets together and then the Ketavim. The Ketavim are the writings. So that would be Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and other writings in the I think Esther would be considered in the Ketavim. The Tanakh was formalized in Yavnia or Yamnia in AD ninety. That's when they finally kind of closed the canon on the Tanakh and said, these are the books that are gonna be part of our our scripture. So just a little sidelight, so you can go out to your friends this week and really, you know, hey, I know this. So the Tanakh is the Old Testament, but it's organized differently. So where did we get to the organization of the books for our Old Testament? The Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Tanakh translated into Greek, and they reordered the books. So we use the order of the Septuagint in our old testament so in the talmud the talmud is that's kind of like if scripture doesn't if you need help with scripture to know more you go to the talmud the talmud is, a, is, a, is a, it's essentially interpretations from the tanakh it's rabbinical interpretations there are two pieces to the talmud two different groupings of books that fit into the Talmud, and that's the Mishnah and the Gemara. The Mishnah came from one uh, community of Judaism. The Gemara came from another community of Judaism. So the Mishnah comes basically from the Ashkenazic Jews. The uh, Gemara comes from what we would call the, oh, what was, that? What was the name of that group? The Makira, uh, Mizrai, Mizrahi. Those who stayed in Babylon, those who stayed in the Middle East, they formed the Gemara. They brought all those together, and it forms the Talmud. And that's lots of different volumes. I think there's like 17 or more volumes to the, to the Talmud. So it's a huge, huge uh, compilation of rabbinical interpretations then within that they have what's called the mitzvah the mitzvah are the 613 laws that they've pulled out of the torah out of the five books of the pentateuch there are 365 negative laws and 248 positive laws and those are all laws that the that the, the orthodox jews would seek to live by in their community The conservative Jewish community, those would inform their community. The Reformed community would say, we'll take what we like, the rest we don't want, essentially. So, those 613 laws, there was a rabbi, I'm trying to remember when... uh, See if I have it in my notes that I teach at Bethel with really quickly. Give me just a second, see if I can find it. So I love names. I don't know if you all are, are interested in names. So there was a, a rabbi by the name of Moshe Ben Maimon, or Maimon. He formed these 13 principles of Maimonides. And these are huge, and these are in just about every Jewish service somewhere, Shabbat service. So, uh, Maimonides has a nickname. Anybody here ever seen the Flintstones? I grew up on the Flintstones. Who were, uh, uh, it was Betty and Barney Rubble. What was their son's name? Bam, bam. He had that clubbing. Bam, bam. Well, Maimonides' nickname is Rambam. Rambam. I think that's kind of cool. Just kind of a you know squirrel moment there. But Rambam created this, these thirteen principles that he pulled out of he consolidated out of out of the six hundred and thirteen laws called the Mitzvot, and he created these thirteen. And you know this these could almost be Christian. It's just that Jesus isn't mentioned there, but God is. God exists and is a creator. You believe that? I do. God is unique and is one. Do you believe that? I do. God is not physical. God is the first and the last. It is proper to pray to God only. The words of the prophets are true. Moses was the greatest prophet. God himself gave Moses the Torah. The Torah is immutable, unchangeable. God is omniscient. God rewards and punishes. Messiah will come. And resurrection of the dead. That's pretty straightforward. But to try and recite and remember all those is kind of a challenge. So they put together something called the Yigdal. And I think this is absolutely beautiful. The yigdal is part of every Shabbat service. Now there are different compilations of it, but this is my favorite one. It's a poem. It's a poem that encompasses the six hundred and thirteen laws. We praise the living God, forever praise his name, who was and is and is to be, for the same. Who was and is and is to be, who's that? Yahweh. That's the name Yahweh. Exodus 3, when God, when Moses asked God, who should I tell him sent me? He said, Yahweh, the one who is, was, and will be. Yahweh is not limited by time. He transcends time. You know how important that is, you all? Living in Russia for 13 years, the Soviets, what I found out as I lived there and studied there as a Christian is that the the, the Soviets took many biblical principles, they took the scripture references out, but they used the biblical principles to organize their their society. Every school child. What do we do to start the, the day at school in public schools? Pledge of Allegiance. In the Soviet system, they had a pledge as well. I'll say it to you in Russian, then I'll translate it for you. Lenin bull, Lenin yeast, Lenin budjet. In English, that means Lenin was, Lenin is, and Lenin will be. You see what they're doing? They're trying to take the transcendency of Yahweh and give it to Lenin because they recognize the importance of that. We praise the living God forever, praise His name, who was and is and is to be, for the same, the one eternal God before our world appears, and there can be no end of time beyond His years. He's eternal. Without a form is He, nor can we comprehend the measure of His love for us without an end. For He is Lord of all, creation speaks His praise, the human race and all that grows, His will obeys. He knows our every thought, our birth and death ordains. He understands our fervent dreams, our hopes, and our pains. Eternal life has He implanted in our soul. We dedicate our life to Him. His way, our goal. Isn't that beautiful? And they recite that at every Shabbat. So that was in the 12th century. So he lived at the end of the 12th century, beginning of the 13th century. The Yigdal was compiled a little bit later. I don't know that he compiled the Yigdal. I think that came, came later. But it came from the mitzvah that he compiled. guys have really hung in there. All right. Let's do the holidays, and then we'll have questions. Fair enough? Okay. So, Jewish holidays. And I'm just going to fly through these pretty quickly, okay? So, Jewish holidays, around the same time as Christian holidays. Many of the Jewish holidays are, are within the time frames of Christian holidays. So, Rosh Hashanah, it's the first of Tishrei. This year it was celebrated September 16th, 2023. It's the day of rest, similar to Sabbath. It's the new year for people, animals and legal contracts. So Tishrei is the first month of their calendar. The day is commemorated by the blowing of a shofar, a trumpet made from a ram's horn intended to awaken the listener from his or her slumber and alert them to the coming judgment. That's the purpose of a Rosh Hashanah. You can read about Rosh Hashanah, if you want to read about it in the Old Testament, you can find a description of Rosh Hashanah in Leviticus 23, verses 23 through 25. So Leviticus 23, verses 23 through 25, and Numbers 29, verses 1 through 6, talks about Rosh Hashanah. Yom Kippur, so 10 days after Rosh Hashanah, the final day of the holy days is Yom Kippur. You all, this is is a very sacred holiday in the life of a Jew. Reformed, conservative, or orthodox. Yom Kippur is the day of repentance and atonement. Now we talk about um, salvation, being saved, That's not a concept within Judaism. Sin is not a strong concept in Judaism as we would define sin. But doing wrong things is part of Judaism, knowing the difference between right and wrong. So Yom Kippur is a very solemn day where they spend time with God Repenting of the sins that they know or the things that they've done wrong that they know they've done wrong, and they bring it to God and He atones for it. That's what Yom Kippur is. It's celebrated on the 25th of September, so it's tomorrow. 25th of September. It's the most solemn holiday of the Jewish holidays. This is the day of atonement and repentance. The 10 days are holy days or days for repentance. So Rosh Hashanah starts it, Yom Kippur finishes it. Yeah? Since they don't do the sacrifice anymore, like they did in the Old Testament, uh, it's just this. Yeah. Do they go to the synagogue or the temple? They can go to the synagogue if they want to, but they can do it from home as well. So it's just a solemn day of kind of being on your own with God and, and going through your life in the past year and making sure that anything that you know you've done wrong, you've brought to God, and He, and he takes it from you. So, yeah, sacrificial system went out in 70 AD when they destroyed the temple. And so that's been, that was one of the struggles. So if you noticed, I talked about the Gemara and the Mishnah and how that came together with the Talmud. All of that was a wrestling that the Jewish community had to wrestle with to decide what are we going to do now that we don't have the sacrificial system? How do we remain Jewish? How do we keep the practices of our faith without the temple? And so. Rabbinical Judaism, which came out from all of that around 90 A.D. to 150 A.D., that's, those were the decisions and the choices that they made that flowed into what we have now. And the temple wasn't part of that. Yeah. Good question. Good question. There's Hanukkah. Hanukkah uh, begins near uh, Christian Christmas. Hanukkah is a festival holiday, a festive holiday commemorating the rededication of the temple, also known as the Festival of Lights. If you're familiar with the intertestamental period, so after the Jews returned to Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile, they ruled themselves for a period of time. Then the Greeks came in and took them over. And the Greeks ruled them for about 200 years, I think, somewhere in there, 200, 250 years. And... One of the last Jewish ru- or last Greek rulers to rule them was a, a general called, by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. And he named himself Epiphanes because he considered himself a god. And he decimated the temple. He took a pig and sacrificed it in the temple. He built altars in the temple to the Greek gods. And he did everything he could to push the Jews towards uh, Greek worship. And he wanted to be worshipped. The Jews rose up. There was a a Jewish priest and his sons who rose up against him. And they became known as the Maccabees. And they defeated, they ended up defeating the Greeks. And they cleansed the temple. And when they restored the lights, because the, the, the candelabra and the altar of incense were to be burning all the time in the temple before the Lord. And when they reestablished the lighting of the candelabra and the burning of the incense, that created the the holiday of Hanukkah. And so that is a celebration of the reestablishment of the temple, the cleansing of the temple. Then Purim. Purim is the celebration from Esther. If you're familiar with the story of Esther and Mordecai and Haman, Haman wanted to destroy the Jews because he hated Mordecai. So he got uh, Xerxes to sign uh, a law that on a certain day, everyone could go against the Jews and wipe them out. You familiar with that story? Yeah. So Purim, Pur in Hebrew means lot. So it was the casting of the lots. And the lot fell to the Jews when Esther got Xerxes to have Haman hung on the gallows and he gave the Jews the right to defend themselves. He couldn't rescind the law, but he could give the Jews the right to to defend themselves. And they did. And they saved themselves. And so Purim is not really a religious holiday as much as it is a national holiday for the Jews. Because it's not talked about as a holiday per se in scripture, but it's a national holiday celebrating how God protected them uh, against the peoples of the world. There are three pilgrimage festivals. So there are three festivals that we encounter in Scripture that, um, that you were encouraged to go back to Jerusalem to celebrate. Those are Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. So... Um, I'll talk about those three here really quickly so Passover you're familiar with the Passover story from Egypt where the angel of death passed over the homes begins near the Christian Easter celebration commemorating the angel of the Lord passing over Jewish homes and the exodus of the Jews from Egypt it's a week long celebration special food without yeast Um, Really Sorry, I forgot to give you all the scripture references. Let me give those to you really quickly. If you want to look up uh, Passover, Exodus chapter 12, Leviticus 23, verses 4 through 8. So Exodus 12, Leviticus 23, verses 4 through 8. Numbers 28, uh, verses 16 to 25 talks about Passover. Shavuot, or the feast of weeks, begins on the Christian commemoration of Pentecost. And it's the celebration commemorating the giving of the Torah. So that's on the 50th day after Passover. Thus Pentecost, Penta 50. Shavuot is also the the time of Pentecost. What's really cool to you all in this, if you're familiar with Acts chapter 2 where it says that there were people from all over the world that had come to Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit fell on the, the believers. And they began to, to speak in languages that the people understood. And if you go to the book of Acts, it lists it. I love Luke's detail. I teach the book of Acts, and so I get a little bit excited about the book of Acts. But Luke was a physician. Anybody here ever go to a doctor? Yeah? What do you hope for from your doctor? that they're really smart and they're really detail-oriented so they can figure out what's wrong with you? Well, Luke writes that way. Luke gives us all kinds of detail in his gospel, and he gives us all kinds of detail in the book of Acts. So he lists the peoples who who were hearing the disciples speaking in their tongue. And if you look at those peoples, they covered the whole known world at that time. And guess who some of those peoples were? Remember I talked about the 10 lost tribes of Israel? Some of them were the 10 lost tribe coming back, and they heard the message of Jesus. And God had all that planned out. God had all that planned out. It was a, it was a pilgrimage festival, and as many Jews as could came back. So Jerusalem, which would have typically been to 200,000 people, was close to a million during this, the pilgrimage festivals. And then Sukkot. Sukkot, it begins on the 15th day of the first month. It's known as the Feast of Booths. It's to remind the people how they lived in the desert for 40 years. And so they used to go out and live in the booths. They don't have to live in the booths anymore, but if they build a booth, oftentimes they'll go out and they'll read Scripture in the booth or they'll have a meal in the booth just as a remembrance of the 40 years in the desert. So Sukkot, uh, Shavuot, or Shavuot is actually Leviticus 23, verses 15 through 22. Leviticus 23, verses 15 to 22. And Numbers 28, verses 26 through 31. Numbers 28, verses 26 through 31. And then Acts chapter 2 would we'll talk about Pentecost there. And then Sukkot, you can find in Leviticus 23, verses 33 through 44. Leviticus 23, verses 33 through 44, and Numbers 29, verses 12 through 40. You all
0: are troopers. Questions? What if, what if we do this? What if we do, maybe can we do like two or three questions yeah. and then I want to respect people's time if they need to leave and then if they have more questions they can just come find you right after Absolutely. So let's do two or three. Two or three questions. Yes. the meaning
1: behind the You know, it, I, I'm not sure. Um, it's just, it's related somehow to the tassels but I don't, I don't know what the, the specific significance of those are. I, I'll try to look it up and have it next week. But I don't know. I don't know for sure. Uh, what it an for us as Christians to celebrate any Jewish holiday? I don't think so. Um, I know that there are a number of Christian churches who will, um, who will have the Seder meal, the Passover meal, and they'll celebrate that, and they'll do all the different readings from the Old Testament to, to remember that. Um, and so I, I don't think that's offensive at all. Um, I have known some Jewish families that if, they ha, if they're friends with Christians, they'll invite the Christians in to celebrate Seder with them. So I've actually celebrated a Seder meal with the Jewish family, and it was a great experience. It was so much fun. So for them, for them it's a celebratory meal. They really, really have fun. Yeah, But then there's the solemn time where they remember... Um, the, the suffering that they experienced in Egypt as well but it's it's mostly a celebratory time so Jewish faith of practice maybe um, is a lot broader than what we would have first recognized. Mm-hmm. but we didn't talk much about um, maybe our best path as Christ followers okay maybe the messiah came already um how do what's our best play in just engaging conversation so that's a great question um every jew is going to be wary of christians because of jesus so i reached out to i i teach this world religions at bethel and oftentimes we'll go to a synagogue or a temple and, and the students will spend time with the, with the rabbi. So I've gotten to know one of the rabbis in South Bend fairly well. And I reached out to him before COVID, and I said, hey, would you like to meet? I would like to meet once a month for coffee. Would you be willing to do that with me? And he's like, sure. So we met at a coffee house in, in South Bend, and I was sitting there when he came in. He got his cup of coffee, sat at the table. He looks at me, he goes, Kent, there's something you need to know about me. You'll never, you'll never get me to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, so don't even try. And I looked at him and I won't say his name. I looked at him and said, Hey, that's not my purpose for meeting with you. I like you. I want to get to know you and I want you to get to know me. So let's just talk about our families. Let's talk about our lives. And so he's like, Okay, I can do that. You know what questions he asked me the most when we would meet? About Jesus. Because I travel in the summertime. And I teach in Africa, I've taught in India, I've taught in, in, in a number of different countries. And so, in the summertime when we would meet, he'd go, okay, where were you this time? And I would tell him, he goes, why would you do that? Why would you put yourself in danger to do that? I said, because Jesus told us to. Oh, okay. So, one of the tribes that I go to, is a, they're called Maasai in Kenya, and they're, they're herders. And so they all walk around with a staff to guide their cattle. And they have something called a rungu, which is a tree root that's kind of, it almost looks like a boomerang, if you know what a boomerang looks like. But it has a big root ball on the end of it and then a handle on it. And they can actually throw that rungu and they can kill a lion with it. That's how accurate they are with it. And so I thought, you know what I'm going to do? One of my favorite psalms is the 23rd Psalm. Guess who knows the 23rd Psalm that I meet with? The rabbi. So I got a rungu, a rungu for him, and we sat for coffee, and I had the rungu sitting on the table, and he came over, he goes, what's that? I said, is a gift for you? He goes, what? I said, are you familiar with the 23rd Psalm? He goes, of course I am. I said, you remember where it says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me? I said, this is a rod. This is a rod among the people that I go to that you keep asking me about. Why would I go there? And I got it for you because I know this is something that can unite the two of us. And he almost got tears in his eyes, you all. He got choked up. He could hardly speak for a moment. That I would think of him in that way. And I can tell you that the time that we spent together, because we became friends, and we talked about each other's families, we talked about what we were doing in ministry, all of that. He asked me more about Jesus than I could have ever tried to talk to him about if I would have approached him to talk about Jesus. Does that make sense? Build a relationship. And God will direct that. But know what we talked about here about the different streams of of Judaism. He's from the conservative Jewish side. And so as I talked to him about his family, He could tell me about his kids and what they believe and there's a spectrum in his, his family. And some of it breaks his heart as a dad, as a rabbi. But it fits within their belief system. So just be real with them. Love them. Love them. And there will be opportunities to talk about Jesus. God will make those opportunities happen. I believe
0: it with all that I am. Again, I think one of the things that stuck out to me the most, Kent, <laughs> I call you that. Um, I love it. Um, is, again, across anything that we'll talk about on these five weeks, the relational side of things. I mean, that's already assumed. Um, but again, coming into a relationship with someone, when we are pursuing Christ, when He is our motivation for all the things that we do, you talked about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so being grounded in His Word, that is the motivation when you begin to develop a relationship with someone, an authentic relationship where, where you're not going into, you know, I'm, I'm going to push Jesus on you, but mm-hmm. I want to develop a relationship with you, they will soon begin to discover that everything coming out of you is because of Jesus. Yep. And they can't help but ask questions about that. And if they're going to pursue a relationship with you, Jesus is going to come into the conversation Absolutely. and they will begin finding themselves asking questions because that is who you are. Mm-hmm. That is everything that is coming out of you. And I think I would assume that that is going to apply across most of these, maybe not, but just the general picture of you develop a relationship and if you are pursuing Christ, it will be unavoidable for them if they are going to meet you mm-hmm. in relationship that that won't be um, breached as a, as a topic. And it will be hard for them to deny um, when they see it impacting mm-hmm. how you live and what you do. So Absolutely. that stood out to me again tonight. Uh, let's pray and we'll close our time. And again, I think you'll be willing to stick around oh, and, yeah. and talk through these things as well. Lord, thank you again for uh, a chance to be together as your um, as your body, as your church. Um, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for the, the time to be together. Um, again, we ask that you would just bless um, Brother Kent, um, thank you for his time. I pray that you would bless him, keep him safe on his way home. Um, Lord, expand his ministry as he continues to travel to churches and encourage and to edify us. Um, would this be a, a, a place where um, we then get to take out uh, being better equipped with the gospel, being better equipped with an understanding of uh, of people that desperately need to know you as their Savior? We ask that you just pour your blessing out on him. Um, Again, thank you for our time. Pray that you would keep us safe on the way home this evening. Bring us back again next week. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.